Romans chapter 8. We have been in a series on, on David, but um, I, I, I want to go someplace different this morning. We'll get back to David next week. But Romans chapter 8. Let's start reading in verse number 18. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, thank you for this sublime passage in your Bible. I pray this morning for the filling of the Spirit, for Lord, no, nobody without the help of the Holy Spirit, could possibly do justice to this wonderful passage. So fill me today, I pray. Forgive me for any sin that would hinder uh, my usefulness today. And fill us all, Lord, with the Spirit that we might hear, that we might respond, that we might accept the message that you have for us today. Speak to us, encourage us, teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I thought this morning we'd spend just a few minutes talking about one of the most familiar passages of Scripture in our Bible. One of those passages of Scripture that is so familiar that, like John 3.16, we sometimes tend to just zone out when we get to that. We've read it and heard it and talked it so many times that we gloss over it because of its familiarity. 
And yet it is one of the most wonderful promises in all of the Bible. And of course I'm talking about verse number 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Someone has said that of the 66 books in the Bible, the book of Romans would be the mountain peak of the Bible. And somebody else has also said that of the chapters in this mountain peak book, chapter 8 would be the mountain peak of the mountain peak. And of all of the verses, some would say that verse number 28 is the very pinnacle of them all. So this morning I want us to unpack this promise just for a few minutes this morning. See if we can learn some things from Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28. And I want us to notice with me five things. I want you to notice with me five things. Number one, I want you to notice the certainty of the promise that's given here. And number two, the reach of the promise. Number three, the mechanics of the promise and the goal of the promise and the beneficiaries of the promise. Five different things we can get from this little verse. Think first of all about the certainty of the promise. The Bible says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the call according to his purpose. We know. Think about that little word. Know for just a minute. There is certainty in this promise. We know that all things work together for good. Certainty is a rare commodity in our world today. Wouldn't you agree? Very few people believe that you can be certain about anything. A survey was taken some years ago by Barna. Barna does a lot of surveys and in statistical analysis of, about things related to the Christian faith. And in this particular survey, uh, the question was asked, do you believe that there is such a thing as absolute truth? Is it possible that we can know anything certainly with any certainty? And I won't bore you with all the statistics, but I'll just share this one. Only 28% of the respondents expressed strong belief in absolute truth. 28%. And the that's not the worst part. The worst part, that is, 23% of born-again or evangelical Christians expressed a belief that there is such a thing as absolute truth. I would suggest to you that most of those are probably not born-again Christians if they don't understand that. But it's sad, is it not? Think about that. That's a telling revelation. That means that more than 75% of people who name the name of Christ say nothing can be known for certain. Nothing can be sure. That would seem to indicate that 75% of people who name the name of Christ aren't even really sure he ever existed. Is that possible? It doesn't even make sense to me. They're not even really sure that he is who he claimed to be, that his word is authentic, that God created the heavens and the earth, that eternal life awaits the believer. Can't be sure about those things, at least if there is no absolute truth. If there is no absolute truth, then by definition, nothing can be absolutely true. To the majority, then, everything is relative. Might be. Might not be. I used to sit by a guy in, in one of the places that I worked. I used to sit in a cubicle with two of us set side by side. And, and he used to drive me crazy with this because no matter what you would say to him, no matter what fact you would state to him, he would say, well, maybe, maybe not. You could say to him, the sky is blue. Well. Maybe. He just wanted to punch you. Because <laughs> it, just, that's just the, the way people think today. Everything's relative. There is no absolute truth. And it, it, it's not anything new, by the way. If we were to go back to the, uh, the, the conversation between Pontius Pilate and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pontius Pilate, who was looking directly into the eyes of the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
He was looking at the truth. And what was his question? What is truth? What is truth? The fact is, though, according to my Bible here, we can be sure about this promise. We know that all things work together for good. You see, the Bible says God does not lie. Ever. He cannot lie. Paul said of Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 21 that he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. We need to have that same level of confidence and certainty and surety because God can't lie. That's what Titus 1 2 says. God cannot lie. Also says it in Hebrews chapter 6. It's impossible for God to lie. If this promise is not sure, then God can lie. And that's not possible. F.B. Meyer said, if any promise of God should fail, the heavens would clothe themselves in sackcloth. The sun, the moon, and the stars would reel from their courses. The universe would rock and a hollow wind would moan through a ruined creation. The awful fact that God can lie. But he can't. can't. There is the certainty of the promise we know. Secondly, there is the reach of the promise. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. All things. Now if you think about that for a minute. That tells me that there is absolutely no limit to what this promise includes. I looked up that word all in Webster's dictionary. He said it means this. All means the whole of. The greatest possible. All means every member or individual part of. All means the whole number or sum of. All means every. But those of you who have been here very long know what my favorite definition of all is. All means all, and that's all all means. What else does it mean? All. All things. What it says to me is that there is no aspect of your experience that is left out of this promise. That means all the good things. All the beautiful things. All the wonderful things that make up this life and that we go through. Those are included. And we ought, therefore, to give thanks. I was reading some Puritan prayers this past week. From a book that I bought at Basics and uh, came across this. One Puritan prayed like this. He said, Thou art all my good in times of peace, my only support in days of trouble, my one sufficiency when life shall end. Help me to see how good thy will is in all. And even when it crosses mine, teach me to be pleased with it. Grant me to feel thee in fire and food and every providence, and to see that thy many gifts and creatures are but thy hands and fingers taking hold of me. Thou bottomless fountain of all good, I give myself to thee out of love. (laughs) Thou bottomless fountain of all good. All the good things, all the good things are included in that promise. That, That Puritan understood it. We ought to understand it too. We ought to give thanks. In everything give thanks, Paul said, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. But all means some other things too, doesn't it? It doesn't just stop with the good things. All things would also encompass things like the trials and troubles that are sometimes part of our life. All things work together for good. One man said, not only does this include the lovely things, but it also includes those heartbreaking and painful experiences where life just seems to collapse around you and fall apart at the seams. These experiences are sent. They don't just happen. This is the testimony of Scripture to the believer. These things are sent. Everything without exception. They don't just happen. All things work together for good. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, 
when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world should be amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. The trials and the troubles are all included in that phrase. All things work together for good. The wrongs that people sometimes perpetrate upon us are included in that phrase. Has anybody ever done you wrong? Anybody ever done you dirty? Anybody? I read where a reporter was interviewing an old man on his 100th birthday. And he said to the old man, what is it after you look back over your 100 years of life, what are you most proud of? And the old man thought for a second, a big smile came across his face, and he said, I am proud of the fact that I don't have an enemy in the world. And the reporter said, that's great, that's a wonderful, wonderful testimony. And the guy smiled, and he said, yep, I outlived every one of them. (laughs) We've all had people do us wrong. I won't bore you with some of the stories from my life, but there have been people who have done us wrong. When people do you wrong, can it be possible that it will work out for good? Well, according to this promise, yes. Yes. You don't have to go very far in your Bible to find examples. How about Joseph? How about Joseph? Joseph is such a wonderful example in the book of Genesis. Read about Joseph. Read about how he was daddy's favorite son. Read about how his brothers hated him because of the fact that he was daddy's favorite son. Read about the time that daddy said, go check on your brothers. And they saw him coming from a far off distance. And they said, let's kill him. Nice family. But when he got close, they couldn't figure out what to do, so they flung him in a pit and left him there while they sat down and munched on their lunch and tried to figure out what they were going to do and how they were going to kill him. Then they looked off in the distance and they saw this caravan of slave traders coming and they said, oh, perfect. We don't need to kill him. We'll just sell him to the slave traders. And they did. Their brother yanked him out of the pit, sold him to the slave traders. He was dragged off to Egypt where he was sold into slavery. Served as a slave for years and then was kicked into jail because of a false accusation and spent years in prison. Eventually, eventually it all worked out. But imagine, imagine that he would sit there and say, how could this possibly work out for good? All these things that my enemies have done to me. But this promise says all things, all things. And it also includes the the mistakes that we sometimes make. Have you ever made a mistake? I like to watch those uh, world's stupidest criminal things. Have you ever liked to watch those things? I read about one or saw one. I don't remember where I saw this, but a bank robber in Los Angeles walked up and held up the teller. But as he was holding up the teller at gunpoint, he said, Now, I don't want you to give me cash. I want you to deposit it in my checking account. That might have been a mistake. (laughs) Max Lucado shared a story about a mistake. He told a story of a fellow by the name of Noble Doss. You football fans may know about this fellow. Noble Doss dropped the ball. One ball, one pass, one mistake. 
1941, he let one fall, and it's haunted him ever since. It cost us the national championship, he says. The University of Texas football team was ranked number one in the nation. Hoping for an undefeated season and a berth in the Rose Bowl, they played conference rival Baylor University. With a 7-0 lead in the third quarter, the Longhorn quarterback launched a deep pass to a wide-open Doss. The only thing I had between me and the goal, he recalls, was 20 yards of grass. The throw was on target. Longhorn fans rose to their feet. The sure-handed Doss spotted the ball and reached out, but it slipped through. And Baylor rallied and tied the score with seconds to play. Texas lost their top ranking and consequently their chance at the Rose Bowl. I think about that play every day, Doss admits. Not that he lacks other memories. Happily married for more than six decades, a father, a grandfather. He served in the Navy during World War II. He appeared on the cover of Life magazine with his Texas teammates. He intercepted 17 passes during his collegiate career, a university record. He won two NFL titles with the Philadelphia Eagles. The Texas High School Hall of Fame and the Longhorn Hall of Fame all include his name. Most fans remember the plays Doss made and the passes he caught. But Doss remembers the one he missed. Once, upon meeting a new Longhorn head coach, Doss told him about the bobbled ball. It had been 50 years since the game, but he wept as he spoke. Have you ever bobbled a ball? Have you ever dropped one? Have you ever made a mistake? Some of our mistakes are silly. Some of our mistakes are sin. Can God work even our mistakes out for his good? Even our sins? I think, yes, there is nothing this promise does not include, and there is nothing that it excludes. Well, let's talk about the mechanics of the promise. The mechanics of the promise. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. They work together. And so first, let me ask you a question again. The Bible says here all things work together. Does that imply that things just will just, is that karma? Is that fate? Is that just saying, well, it's all going to work out in the end? Is that what that is? Is that what it was talking about? I've mentioned before about, about a management technique I read years ago in a, in a book on, on management. And it was called the, uh, the uh, management by walking around technique. And simply stated, it, it, it's, it meant if you just walk around and ignore things long enough, they'll fix themselves. Management by walking around. Is that what this is talking about? Everything's just going to work out. Is that what's being referred to here? I don't think so. You see, the fact is, the meaning of this verse is God works all things together for good. Other translations translate it that way. The NIV says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. New American Standard, God causes all things to work together for good. Things don't just happen. This is God who is doing the working. This is the sovereignty of God on display here. We go back to the story of Joseph. Read it on your own sometime, and you see God is working in every step of that Seemingly horrible story. God's sovereignty on display. God sees the big picture that we can't see. There are individual events in our lives which, when viewed separately, might be very difficult for us to understand. But if we could see them together, if we could see them as God sees them, we would understand perfectly. And he does see them. One man said no affliction would trouble the child of God if he or she knew God's reason for sending it. You see, God wants us walking by faith. He wants us walking by faith right now. That word work, worketh, is in present tense. We need to believe and trust that right now, this very moment, God is working in our lives. All things right now are working 
for our good. It's easy to look back on the past, and it's similarly easy to look forward to the future. It's this now part that's hard, isn't it? Listen to how Spurgeon put it. Spurgeon put it like this. He said, I find it extremely easy to believe that all things have worked together for my good. I can look back at the past and wonder at all the way whereby the Lord hath led me. If ever there lived a man who has reason to be grateful to Almighty God, I think I am that man. I can see black storms that have lowered over my head, torrents of opposition that have run across my path, but I can thank God for every incident that ever occurred to me from my cradle up to now and do not desire a better pilot for the rest of my days than he who has steered me from obscurity and scorn to this place to preach his word, feed this great congregation. And I doubt not that each of you, in looking back upon your past experience as Christians, could say very much the same through many troubles you have passed. But you can say they have all been for your good. And somehow or other you have an equal faith for the future. You believe that all things will in the end work for your good. The pinch of faith always lies in the present tense. I can always believe the past and always believe the future. But the present, the present present. That is what staggers faith. All things work together. Well, notice also the goal of the promise. We know that all things work together for good, for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And again, I would ask the question, what, what is good? What is good? There is a good that the world calls good, things like money, wealth, health, success in business. Lots of friends, uh, fame, power, all kinds of things you can think of that the world would call good. But that's not what's referred to here. Does your experience tell you that all things work together for that kind of good? Certainly not. Now, the good that God means here is that which is truly good. It's a spiritual good, and it doesn't always equal the world's definition of good. We need to desire the good that God calls good. I like what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building up a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. You see, there is the ultimate good, which is God's true goal in all of this. And we read about that in another verse. We've been concentrating on verse 28, but look at verse 29. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That's the ultimate good. He wants us to be like Jesus. He's not trying to make us into good church members or good husbands or fathers, or good encouragers or preachers or soul winners or good prayer warriors or good Sunday school teachers or any of that stuff. He wants us to be like Jesus. That's the ultimate good. He wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. Second Corinthians chapter 3 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Well, one last thought. The beneficiaries of the promise. The beneficiaries. We know that all things work together for good. To who? To them that love God. To them who are the called, according to his purpose. 
this is a wonderful promise. But it's not for everybody. This is a wonderful promise. But it's only for those who know Christ. Defined here in this verse as those who love God. Defined in this verse as the called according to his purpose. And so if you don't know Christ this morning, then this promise is not for you. The Bible says that the natural man, referring to the person without Christ, receives not the spirit, the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. And so some might be sitting here this morning and might be saying, well, that's not very fair. I like that promise. I want that promise to apply to me. Well, it's simple. You just need to become a child of God. You just need to become a Christian. There is a promise in the Bible that applies to you. There are many. Call unto me and I will answer thee. You just need to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. You need to call upon him and be saved. You need to do it today. And the very second that you do that, then glory, this promise does apply to you. The beneficiaries of the promise. Well, so let's review. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. This promise of God is absolutely true and certain you can count on it. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Nothing in your experience or in mine is less out of that promise. All things are included in it. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Don't let the individual hardships, the problems, the trials that God brings into your life. See the big picture. He is working. His all-seeing, all-knowing. Sovereignty is working in your life for your good. And don't forget, too, that these things are working together now and in the present tense. You might be going through something right now. You might be saying, I can see where he did it in the past, but right now, right now, I'm struggling. He is working now. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Remember, especially this promise is for you, Christian. And if you're here today without Christ... This promise is not yours. You can't claim it. The promise you need to concentrate on is a few verses further on in Romans. Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why would anybody want to walk out of this place this morning lost? When you could have a promise like this. All things work together for good. To whom? To them who love God. To call according to his purpose. You can have that promise be part of your life if you don't. By simply calling upon the name of the Lord today. And Christian... Think about, think about what this means to you. And praise God for all that we have in him. All things work together for good. To them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose.